Welcome to Bloom, a podcast about anything and everything, which features conversations with people who have led meaningful, interesting and flourishing lives, in order to better understand each other, ourselves and the world around us. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend Lucy Walk, a Melbourne-based writer, editor and interviewer. Together, we were lucky to interview acclaimed Australian philosopher and author Raymond Gator. It's a long and rich conversation, beginning with the biography and history of the Gator family's migration to Australia, before examining the literary impact of Romulus, my father, as well as tracing the philosophical influences of Gator's work, and how these ethics and values might be applied to a range of contemporary issues. So, without further delay, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as Lucy and I did. It's a great um, pleasure and honour to be joined here today with philosopher and award-winning author Raymond Gator, who became known widely to the public through his um, book Romulus, My Father, which is a moving eulogy about his father transformed into a book and years later a film. My high school philosophy teacher, uh, who invited Raymond to give a lecture to philosophy students, noted that he writes and thinks beautifully. You see a heart and mind at work. It's a great privilege to be here with you today, Ray, and thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. I'm honoured that you should want to do this. And we're also joined today by my good friend Lucy Walk, who's a writer in Melbourne and has a, a wonderful history of um, doing radio and other live interviews as well. So, Lucy, great to be here with you. Thank you, Nick, and uh, thank you for that extremely generous introduction. That's okay. So, um, Raymond, one of the things that strikes me about your life and career is how it has been informed and shaped by history and circumstance and I suppose forces beyond the individual's control in many ways. So if you were to give a snapshot of your life story and work for our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your publications, how would you do so? Uh, well, I was born in Germany. Uh, that, that's important to, to a lot of my thinking, that, that I was born in, in Germany uh, in 1946. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, mostly uh, because my mother suffered badly from asthma and was advised that Melbourne, of all places, would be good for asthma. <laughs> it's one of the worst places in the world. Uh, we came out in 1950. Uh, she uh, suffered already, actually, when I was born, I'm quite sure, uh, from what turned out to be manic depression. And uh, symptoms of manic depression, not universally, but often, uh, spending, tending to spend just a, a hell of a lot, uh, and also um, a sort of heightened sexual desire, which often leads to promiscuity. Uh, and that led to uh, my mother and father effectively separating when we got to Australia. She was in a camp in Bonnie Killer. We, we landed, we all, uh, both of us, three of us, <laughs> uh, went to Bonnegula, but my father, uh, because of the conditions of his passage, uh, was sent to work uh, uh, on the construction of a reservoir in central Victoria. Uh, and my mother uh, was uh, stayed in Bonnegula, and people would come down to the camp in central Victoria. Uh, the location was Ken Curran. And they would tell my father that I was running while my mother mm. was stealing their husbands. And so uh, I ended up in the camp with my father, though it was a men's only camp. But I was very fortunate in that he had met in that camp two Romanian uh, uh, friends. Oh, I should say I didn't uh, 
and say this before him, my father was born in the former Yugoslavia, but in a Romanian village on mm. the border. And he always considered himself to be a Romanian. Uh, and Romanian was his mother tongue. So he met these uh, Romanian uh, two, two brothers, uh, one whose name was Pantelimon Ora, and the other, uh, his name was Mitra Ora, Mitra was younger. Uh, and Pantelimon and my father shared night shift day shift sort of roster so that I could be looked after in this camp. Uh, but eventually the authorities uh, said that uh, I had to leave because uh, the children were not permitted in the camp. And so we managed to rent a dilapidated farmhouse uh, in central Victoria, mm. uh, where my father and I lived for about 10 years or, or, or a little longer actually. Um, and my mother uh, came occasionally to visit, but to cut a long story short, she fell in love with Mitchell, Pastor Moore's brother, and who had been a close friend of my father's. Uh, and uh, they lived together, uh, had uh, a, a daughter, Susan, uh, and my mother was pregnant with another daughter, Barbara, yeah. when Mitchell killed himself. Uh, largely because he had become desperate, I think, uh, because of her promiscuity and uh, spending. She, she would, he would earn six pounds a week or something like that, and she might buy a dress for twenty pounds, which meant that he was working two jobs. She was incapable of looking after Susan. Uh, genuinely incapable. I mean, it's not that she didn't want to, mm. she, she just couldn't. Uh, and that drove him to such des desperation that he killed himself. And she killed herself uh, about two years uh, after the, uh, on the eve of her 30th birthday. Uh, so um, when I wrote, interestingly, uh, Perhaps I might as well say this now, at this stage of the conversation, when I thought I should write about my life, uh, having been encouraged by the response I got to the eulogy that I published, that I'd given at my father's funeral. I didn't want to publish it originally, but people pressed me to do it. I then thought I might write a book, uh, uh, and thought, well, I'll write it on weekends and so on. Uh, but what drove me finally to write the book, which completely surprised me, was that my daughter uh, had given me a tape for my 50th birthday of mm. uh, music she liked and thought I hoped I would like and so on. And on that tape there was a song by a country and western singer called Emmylou Harris. And uh, the song, uh, its refrain was it's called Goodbye and as the refrain. I can't remember if we said goodbye. Yeah. It's not a great song, but it, it, she has a haunting, a haunting voice, and for whatever reason, uh, it really got to me. Uh, and in this very room, I, I played it for a week on those quiet, you'll see behind, <laughs> behind me, <laughs> and those quiet big speakers, and all the glasses in that cabinet over there were rattling. Shaking, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, but I thought always about my mother. Mm. Uh, as I was listening to this, and then uh, uh, I said eventually uh, to Yael, my wife, that um, I was going off to the country, to, to, to where I grew up, uh, to write. 
So, in fact, I was inspired to write this book. I don't know if inspired is the right word, but anyway. I'm perhaps enabled, occasioned, I don't know what mm. the word is, uh, to write this book think about my father thinking about my mother. And it's a book I wrote in three weeks, the first draft, uh, and, and sort of mad intensity. Feverish is how you describe yeah, well, it. Yeah. Feverish, it's sort of oscillating between uh, joy and depression. But the first week, uh, I wrote about my mother. One week in three, it's quite a lot. Mm. So when people ask me, as naturally as they do, why did you write this book? I, I, I honestly have to say, I don't know mm. why I wrote it. I mean, there's, a, there's an answer on the surface, which is I wanted to celebrate my father's values. Mm. Uh, but I could have written some kind of... Well, in fact, I did in, in a, a book afterwards called After Onwards. Mm. I wrote an essay uh, in which I quite explicitly discussed the effects that his thinking and his life, mostly his life, had, had not, not, not only on my thought about how one should live, but on meta, or in philosophy called meta questions about the very nature yes. of morality. Um, but uh, so I, I could have done that if all I wanted to do was to reflect upon his values. So there, there was also the fact that I think instinctively I wanted to tell a story hmm. and write it in, the, in a narrative form. Uh, but, but then there was all, always a constant um, thought about my mother and though uh, she, she well, halfway through the book, she's gone. I mean, she's died. Mm. Uh, but f about 15 years later, I, I wrote an essay about her uh, called An Unassuageable Longing, uh, which, uh, well, the title speaks for itself. Thank you very much for that. As we mentioned earlier, you're, you're best known for Romulus, My Father, and you've done a whole range of other uh, philosophical works, such as A Common Humanity and The Philosopher's Dog, and a, a range of other different works as well. But if we were to sort of ground the discussion in Romulus uh, as both sort of text and film, I think it's sort of ne neatly encapsulated by Helen Garner's um, summation of it in The Monthly some years ago. And she wrote, and I quote, It's a story of suffering, obsessive love, sexual betrayal and jealousy, abandonment of small children, violence, madness and despair, two suicides, repeated acts of forgiveness and loyalty that are nothing short of heroic, and threaded through all this, the miraculous blossoming of a child's intellect. The book changed the quality of the literary air in, the, in this country. People often take an unusually emotional tone when they speak about it, as if it had performed for them the function that Franz Kafka demanded. A book must be the act for the frozen sea within us. Reading it, with, the stiff, with its stiff, passionate dignity and its moral demands, can smash open as a reader's blocked-off sorrows. Out they rush to meet those that the book relates. There's a lot to unpack there, but what stands out most for me is the profound impact that the book, simply and movingly told, seems to have on people of all walks of life over the past 21 years. So why do you think this is the case? Uh, to, to tell you the truth, I don't know. Uh, be, uh, before uh, we started this, uh, we, we talked a little about a time I went last year to Melbourne Grammar School to talk uh, uh, well, to a philosophy class, but also to an astonishingly a year nine class on Romulus, my father. First of all, I was surprised how how well they understood 
this book, which I wouldn't have thought. Um, but but I was also surprised that that that, that these young people and and it's happened many times before when I've talked to school kids, and I always think of of, of, of that that what they prize most of all uh, is a kind of cool urbanity, cool mm. coolness above all, mm. and that they should be so taken. Well, I'm sure a lot of them aren't, but, but, yeah. but a lot are uh, taken by a book uh, um, which is about a man and celebrates uh, uh, his passionate intensity. Yeah. Uh, I, I've sometimes thought about my own work that I could probably truthfully subtitle just about everything I've written uh, against urbanity. So it, it has surprised me and, and, mm. uh, and I, I don't know. I, I, I tell the story in a book called After Romulus of, an, of a time when I was asked to give uh, a reading of Romulus. It was just after it had been published mm. uh, at um, the Sacred Heart Mission, which is not far from here in St Kilda. And I had refused at first um, because I thought they'd not come for literature, they'd come for lunch. And I felt it would just seem presumptuous to but, you know, I, I was convinced to do it, and I, I was asked, I, I asked um, for how long should I read, and normally when I read, uh, it would be for 30 minutes or uh, 40 and even, and people then would ask questions, and uh, the man who was in charge said to me, try 10 minutes, and I was there for two and a half hours. Wow. I had to just say, I'm sorry, I've just got to go. <laughs> but what, what was, uh, for me, really profound about about that occasion uh, was that there was a man sitting uh, at a table probably a meter and a half from me and he, he he was obviously to me mentally ill and I could see by the way he had his hands around his, mm. his head and look and and suddenly he uh, uh, exclaimed um, there's God in this book and I had, as, as a student, worked in a mental hospital and being very idealistic, I had started a debating society uh, called, it was Larundel, called Larundel Literary and Debating Society. And at the first meeting, a, a, a young man who'd been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic picked up a chair and hit another one. Mm. <laughs> into the face uh, with the chair, and that was the end of Lorenzo. And when this man said, Mike, there's God in this book, he said, I mean, it's filled with love. And not long after, he got up and walked around the room and threw up his arms and again, in an exclamatory voice, said, Your father was a genius. And he then explained, I mean, a genius of the spirit. And I was incredibly moved by this. But I was also very moved by the fact that all, sitting also roughly the same distance from me was a group of uh, young women, I don't think any of them were 20, who were street girls pleading mm. uh, heroin out of And they asked me to read again and again and again and again. Uh, about my mother, mm. and I assumed because they somehow saw in her broken, uh, tormented life something of, of their own. And I, I don't know if this is true, I hope it is true. Anne Mann wrote in 
the introduction to the uh, text classics edition, uh, that, that she surmised that those girls hoped that somehow their life might be viewed with the same compassion that, that Anne thinks the book shows toward, towards uh, my mother. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, the thing that, that but apart from all that being very moving for me in, in, in itself, much more moving than anything else that's happened in regard to the book and, and has mattered to me much more than all the praise and so on it's received, uh, is, is, is the fact that I, I and this didn't, I, didn't occur to me straight away, but I, afterwards I, I, I realised that I had managed to find a voice in that book mm. that could speak with uh, two people who suffered really terrible mm. affliction uh, and in a way that, that didn't condescend in any way yes. to their affliction. Uh, even though I've made a bit of a joke about this uh, fellow uh, you know, being quite mad, actually. Mm. But, but it, 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 it was something that I, I, uh, that I, I know was true of my father. Uh, that he he could respond, and he responded indeed to a to a friend of ours who was quite mad, a man called Buckset, and who was visibly mad, talked to himself, cooked in his urine, and and so on, without a trace of condescension. Hmm. Something I I myself had had consciously come to realise, although I must have instinctively realised already as a boy, but I, I consciously came come to realise. Indeed, after I'd written the book, and I was on a publicity tour mm. uh, with a, a couple of journalists from the age, and I took them to where Fatsik had lived amongst these two boulders mm. that he covered with bits of whatever. They, and and, and um, one of them said, did Fatsik appear weird to you as a kid? And I said, no. And then afterwards I thought, why the hell didn't I think he was weird as a kid? He was. He was weird. And I realised then, that it was because, and it wasn't just my father's horror to uh, have responded to Bartzik without a trace of condescension, which if there'd been even a trace of it, I would have, with a kind of cruel sensitivity mm-hmm. that children have, have realised that Bartzik wasn't entirely one of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I would have liked him, because he was very kind to me and, and always was kind to me, and obviously I would have liked him. But I wouldn't have been able to respond so spontaneously without thinking to that question, was he weird, mm. by saying no, had he not appeared to me in the light that, that my father's behaviour cast on him. Mm. So, and that, that has been, when I uh, uh, said before that I, I wrote uh, in After Romulus an essay uh, uh, reflecting on, on what, my, what I had learned from my father, uh, then that was one of the most important things I had learned from my father and came to witness again uh, in a much more dramatic form uh, when I was a young man working in a psychiatric hospital. In one sense, what a beautiful thought that uh, the, the ideal reader and the most prized audience for your work is not a critic or a professor, but is someone who uh, that sense of affliction and the sense of, of being understood or compassionately viewed is most relevant to 
Um, I think it's unsurprising, having read the book and you know read the stories of Hora and Romulus, that that might be your ideal audience. Mm. Um, one thing that um, one thing that actually strikes me in, in that story that you were telling is that it reminds me so much of Simone Weil, and the, who's a sort of philosopher, activist, mystic, um, who clearly has been a kind of constant thread in your work. Mm. Um, and you tell that story in A Common Humanity where you sort of reflect on her belief that compassion for the afflicted is miraculous mm. and, and advance that distinction between the coldness and distance of egalitarianism and a more complicated notion of goodness. Um, I was wondering... A, if you could tell us about you know, how you came across her and what she means to you and the way that she comes I, I, through I, in your work. I came across her um, uh, where I, I wasn't interested in moral philosophy as a student. Mm. Uh, I, I went to England, in fact, to, to work on logic um, and metaphysics. Mm. Uh, uh, moral philosophy, I thought, was tedious and I had no axe to grind about uh, about changing moral philosophy. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I, someone had, had recommended to me Iris Murdoch's book, The Sovereignty of Good, yeah. and, uh, which, which I liked, but I, I, it never occurred to me that I would go on to do moral philosophy. But, uh, it, uh, but she was very much influenced by Simone Weil. Uh, and that, then I read Simone Weil, and I responded immediately to her. Uh, because of what she says about affliction. And the reason I responded immediately to her was because uh, of an experience. Well, there was my father, of course, and what I said. And mm. um, also because of the affliction I had seen in, in, in my father. Uh, and a time when he came indeed to my school, I tell the story more as Romulus, my father. Uh, and he. he uh, my father was quite mad, and he'd, um, he'd been in a psychiatric hospital, and he came uh, looking evidently mad. Um, yet I could perhaps read the description of course. From, from, from the book, uh, if I can find it. I'm really bad at finding things. But my father came to um, visit me at the school with, with Watsik, and this is how I write about it in Romulus, my father. A few weeks later, he visited me at school in Ballarat with Watsik. As soon as I saw him, I knew that his illness had again overtaken him. He came dressed in a disheveled navy pinstripe suit with a dirty white shirt open at the neck, the collar partly covered by the collar of his jacket. He seemed shrunken, stooped, not with age, he was only 39, but with the burden of his affliction. Most startling was his face, thin, unshaven, his eyes, not dead as is often the case with depression, but burning with the terror of his visions, all made worse by the fact that his almost shaven head made him look as though he'd come from a concentration camp. Masek walked beside him in an equally shabby beige suit and open dirty shirt, wearing as ever his beanie. He no longer had a beard, and his open, amiable face was covered in stubble. His eyes focused on no one, his lips were hardly ever still, moving in sometimes silent, sometimes audible conversation with himself or imaginary partners. Afterwards, a teacher asked me if one of the men had been my father. 
No, I replied. I was later tormented with guilt and shame for having denied my father, but I knew not quite for what I was ashamed, because I also knew that terrible though it was, my denial was not prompted by cowardice. Uh, when, when I, when I in, in, I think it's in After Romulus, I reflect on that passage, and because it's very dense there, the, uh, well, you know, when I say it wasn't guilt, uh, I was filled with guilt and shame. But, mm. Uh, and I, I, I think I was no longer able to see in my father his full humanity because of his affliction. What I was able to see as a boy in Butsek, and which he enabled me to mm. see, had deserted me mm. by the time I myself was a teenager at school. It, and, and I'm sure something like that is true of it because it would be too. I'm, 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 I'd be astonished if the teachers who've been teaching this don't simply say, oh, Ray was very embarrassed or something like that, or you know, felt embarrassed in front of his peers. And although that play, play, probably played a part in it, uh, uh, I, it, I think it went much deeper than that. And, and, and the deeper thing that's revealed in something like that is that it is, as Simone Weil says, that it's almost impossible to see the full humanity of someone who's radically, radically afflicted. Mm. And for that reason, it's almost impossible to respond to them without, with a compassion that is not, in some way, laced with condescension. Yeah. But a sort of um, a compassion that comes from a principled egalitarianism is not, cannot <laughs> avoid being condescending. Well, it needn't be that either, oh. because um, one of the, one of the, it, it um, I don't I don't know if I, it will take up too much time to tell the story about that nun in. It's fine, yeah. In, uh, well, when I when uh, I was sixteen or seventeen, I can't remember. I worked uh, as a ward assistant in a psychiatric hospital, and uh, for three months uh, in a ward where people had been some had been for twenty or thirty years. Uh, and uh, uh, in the time I was there, not one of them had a visitor, and they were treated really, really brutishly. If you've seen the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's mm. Nest, then it was really a bit like that, but worse actually. And as an example of how brutish it could be, uh, often when they sat uh, in, in this sort of gravel yard under the one tree that provided a bit of shade, and then soiled themselves as, as, as happened. You weren't really asked to just shove them under a shower and, and push prodding them into the shower with a mop and mm. uh, washing them down uh, under that shower. Uh, um, Simone Vey has a wonderful expression where, where, where one stage she says um, that the people who are radically afflicted, the, the silent cry that she says comes from the heart, usually when people are hurt, which is a cry, why am I being hurt, mm. uh, is sometimes silent, um, but it's, it's, it's never dead. It's just that they, they are, are, are struck with a, a dumb and mute lamentation mm. that, that somehow characterise uh, these, these people. Uh, and they were treated brutishly by the nursing staff uh, and by most of the psychiatrists. But there was in that hospital a, a small group of psychiatrists who treated them 
wealth and, and who were ridiculed by their colleagues as being uh, uh, naive idealists and who were really stuffing things up really rather than making things better. Mm. But I, uh, one of them, uh, in fact, spoke to me. It was the first time I heard the expression of the inalienable dignity of even those people. And I didn't understand what that expression meant, but it moved me. Uh, mm. But uh, so I was very, very impressed by these psychiatrists, um, by, by their compassion, by their preparedness to put up with ridicule, by how hard they worked. But one day a nun came uh, into the ward, and, and um, at first there was nothing at all remarkable about her. And, but when she started moving amongst the patients, I was suddenly wonderstruck uh, by uh, the fact that her demeanour and her tone of voice uh, when speaking to them revealed to me uh, that she responded to them without a trace of condescension. But the reason that I was so struck by that was, was that, that I had still before my eyes, even there, so to speak, the mm. behaviour of the psychiatrist, whom I had so admired, and I realised only when Mel behaved as she did towards them that they, as, and I too, had responded to these patients with a, a, a kind of benign condescension. Uh, and there was, I, I tell this story in the common humanity, and I've tried to tell it in other places because I keep trying to cap capture the right words in characterising my astonishment. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, I sometimes wanted to describe it as, as an affront to reason. Uh, um, I wanted to emphasize that it's not merely that reason can't capture it, because I think it's true of all moral morality, actually, that it's not underwritten by reason. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't say, look, here's something that's astonishing because reason, reason can't capture it. That's why I sometimes use the word like an affront to reason, yeah. deeply and profoundly unnatural. Mm. Um, and there was, but there was, uh, there was a, 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 an occupational therapist in that hospital, and she, and, and I'm, I'm mentioning her in response to your mm. remark about egalitarianism. Mm. Uh, she, she was a wonderfully warm-hearted woman, uh, and. Uh, she was very, very calm when these patients came to occupational therapy. Uh, but, but she too responded. I realised, again, only after having been a witness to the nuns' behaviour, mm. uh, with, with she too, the occupational therapy responded with a, 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 a element of condescension. And when I describe her behaviour in Arthur Romanus, I say I suspect she would have found it unintelligible that there was any other way properly to behave. Right. Uh, and I, I suspect she might have said to, to suggest there's some other way to respond to them other than with a loving but benign condescension would be insulting to them because that's the truth about their condition. Mm -hmm. And she might even go on to say, how can you be so stupidly high-minded as to pretend anything else? Mm. 
And that, and, and, but, and, but, and so I've, I've tried so many times to try to capture what was so astonishing and extraordinary about this, and why I've referred to my own response to it as a kind of act of witness, mm -hmm. uh, which I would never want to say about ordinary moral things, uh, even though I've spent a lot of time arguing with it. Reason, right under right, our, 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 our most basic um, moral concepts. Um, but because I've written about her and, and for probably in this way, and because I've talked and said that what she revealed, if I wanted to talk about it, would be the inalienable preciousness of even these people. The reason I call it inalienable is because affliction can't take it away. Uh, can uh, you are not alienated from it by affliction? I've wanted to argue that, that in, in, in this kind of case, what we call the inalienable dignity of human beings is revealed, in fact, in, in that kind of saintly love. Mm -hmm. And the reason I, I, I have, in, later on in, in my work, uh, uh, though I haven't yet published it, I, I'm writing a book for Columbia University Press, which I'll write about this, uh, have been so resistant now to talk of inalienable dignity. Uh, it's because it's always inflected in a heroic key and in fact has been used in political struggles against oppression precisely because of that heroic key. Mm. And because it, but I want to say it creates the illusion uh, that, that no matter how, well, so they again has this expression that some people suffer such affliction that they're they're on the ground like a writhing on the ground like a half crushed worm. Yeah. That's the position that people can be reduced to, and to pretend that that in that position they could open their shirts, as it were, like Superman used to. Open. Clark Kent used to reveal the S, but not an S, but a big D. The dignity that though mm. you've lost anything that people would call dignity, and so manifestly they've lost it. You've got a dignity that you can't lose. Mm. I think that's an illusion, uh, but a very noble illusion. But it's the concept. But but the concept of nobility itself is a concept in a heroic key. Mm. And this is what I learned in that hospital. You, those people won't learn that. You, whatever was, uh, however you might respond to the the the, the, the nun's behaviour, it wasn't revealing the, the heroic dimension of such people. Because of this, people have, have, have thought I'm a classic Christian. Uh, but <laughs> I, and I keep saying I'm not, I'm not religious. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, though I do think that it, it's, it's, it's part, probably partly in the history of Christianity and the deeds of saintly love that we've been able to affirm such what would seem a kind of ridiculous thing. Um, to, to affirm anything beyond what this wonderful social uh, occupational therapists mm. that, that, that there could be something beyond. But I, I, I because I think it's so astonishing, I, I wouldn't want to criticise the occupational therapists. Mm -hmm. in, I think it's in, in a common humanity. I actually say the nuns' behaviour showed up the psychiatrists. I would not say that anymore. Because that sounds like a criticism of them. And, and 
it doesn't capture, as it were, the distance. Because it makes it sound as though they're on a line and the nun's a little bit further up the line. Mm. You know, a, a, a superwoman of compassion where they were just ordinary mortals. <laughs> the, um, you know, the, the uh, occupational therapists a little lower and the uh, nursing staff right. Uh, with that, that it, 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 the idea that she's on a, on a, on a line, really high up on a line, uh, is, is, for me, mistakes uh, the, the character of, of, of her compassion. But the other reason, and this is why I, I mentioned before, that mm. it is important to my sense of things that I was born in Germany is that mm. I'm married to a, a, a Jewish wife. Uh, and there's there's hardly a day goes uh, by in and I have two steps to hardly a day goes by in my life where I'm not conscious of the fact that in the lifetime of my parents uh, they would have been eliminated as though they were vermin unfit to inhabit the earth and that was made possible uh, in part not only but certainly in significant part by centuries of Christian anti-Semitism. Uh, so, for me to be tempted to Christianity, let's say, uh, would be, for me, a betrayal of my Jewish family. I'm just reflecting on the fact that this, this whole process, or, you know, this book and this line of thinking um, and what you've become to the public began with a simple eulogy as well. Um, and uh, what I wonder about that is, um, in a eulogy, who do you think the audience is? Is it the dead or is it the living? Um. Uh, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I've never thought of. Um, so I, 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 well, let me first of all say that I, I think you can, um, the, the dead can be an audience. Mm -hmm. and, and I've tried to argue in, in my work that the dead can be irreducibly the object of our obligations, our pity, and so on, and that we ought not to think that this depends on any belief in their having survived their death or anything like that. Mm -hmm. and, and people are tempted, of course, when uh, you say, well, of course, I don't believe they survived their death, then they're going to say what you're really talking about is the memory of the dead, not the dead, uh, in some way or other. So how, how can, if you admit that they're gone, how can they be the object of your pity? To which I simply say, to say that they're gone, it's just to say they're dead. It, it is always a really interesting exercise for students, actually, in seminars. Um, I write on the blackboard, can the dead be harmed? Uh, mm. Question mark and uh, and uh, and then uh, students will always say, of course they can't be harmed if they did. And I mean, of course if they survived in some way, they might be harmed. And they said, well they can't feel anything. And I said, well that's true, they did, isn't you see on the blackboard? Can the dead be harmed? And then they say, um, well, uh, how can they be upset by anything? And well, they say, can't upset. So the, 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 the tendency was always to say, to, 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 to object to the idea that the debt could be the irreducible object of, let's say, an obligation mm -hmm. or, or, or pity 
uh, on uh, it would always be to say, how can you pity them if they're dead? They don't feel anything. To which you say, of course they don't feel anything. They're dead. And it was uh, it was a very very interesting uh, uh, exercise because th th their thought was the dead could not be the irreducible objects of our thoughts or around uh, our obligations or our pity, unless. They weren't really dead, <laughs> uh, and uh, but because to the ancient Greeks, it wasn't because they believed in the gods that they they you know, that they pitied um, uh, Achilles when he was um, sorry Hector when he was being dragged around the walls. So, in answer to your question, I I I'd say um, it it. When you're giving a, a eulogy, uh, it, it, it's very important that you honour the dead. Mm -hmm. And what that demands by way, well, it's right that you don't dishonour the dead. But not necessarily and, and because I, they can I feel. I want to say I, that doesn't mean dishonour their memory, which is quite different. Or mm -hmm. let me put it, if you're dishonouring their memory, that is by saying things that are tr untruth about them. What's wrong about that is your dishonouring thing. So that 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 uh, what 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 the consequences of that are for truth telling in a eulogy? Um, uh, people can argue with that. Mm. Uh, I think everybody's prepared in the case of a eulogy to allow a little latitude <laughs> to, for the exaggeration of virtue. But but there comes a point. In, in which, if for the sake of your audience, your um, eulogy is, is quite untruthful, then I, I would want to say to the person for whom that eulogy has been given uh, is being dishonoured. In the eulogy that you gave for your father, um, do you, did you feel that you had the opportunity to have said those things or were they understood between you um, before his death or in some sense? No, I, I don't think there were. It was a, a, a kind of, it was a kind of revelation to me, <laughs> actually. Um, my father and I, and I, I, I don't try to hide this in Romulus, my father, had sometimes a very tempestuous relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, but, but the, the fact that the, the tribute I paid him came out so spontaneously, and I think truthfully, um, I asked Horat, I wrote the book, what he thought of the book. He said it, 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 it tells the truth, which for me was very, very important. So. Yeah, it was it was a kind of revelation. The the, the thing um, for me about the end of the book is when you're saying to your father in German, you know, "I love you, uh, mein Vater, I love you, mein Father," and then the last words that um, essentially your father uh, heard um, before he passed on. Um, <clears throat> there's that sort of small indication of the love that you bore for your father, which didn't fully become, I suppose, manifested and fleshed out until you wrote the eulogy. And then the, the memoir and the, and the book that we have here, which is you know, a work of nonfiction. And it is a huge gesture to honour the memory of your father. But 
I think even in that sort of those final moments with your father and that understood affection and love that you had while living, that strikes me as being quite um, mould-breaking, I think, in a lot of Australian society in which, you know, relations between men, especially fathers and sons or uh, friends, are often sort of uh, almost exclusively sort of non-emotional. You know, we sort of are afraid to step into that space. And and one of the amazing things that I think that your work has done in, in, in selling so many copies and becoming sort of so widely known and part of the law of Australia, and even it's been translated as well, is to go back to Lucy's point as well about intended audience, um, you know, giving your father a sort of a life beyond death uh, through memory, but also help to expand the possibilities of masculinity, I think. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, well I, I hadn't I, I hadn't thought of that. Um, it certainly wasn't my intention to do it. But, um, if, if anything, as, as I've already indicated, writing Romans my father has made it absolutely clear to me that authors aren't the best people. <laughs> so certainly the, the, their, their views on their books of this kind uh, and can't be authority. In, but in, in a, a book of philosophy, if someone says, I don't think this argument is any good, I'll say, well, tell me why, and I'll either accept that it's not or argue that it is. And, and it's, it's relatively simple. Mm -hmm. but in, in a book of, like Romulus, my father, if somebody says to me, well, you know, I find your writing about your mother quite cold, which some people have said, mm. um, uh, then I can, or the only thing I can say is, well, I, I hope you're wrong and, and say uh, others don't find it, but, but, but there's nothing I can do which is the equivalent of saying, tell me why do you think this argument is not a, is, is not a valid argument. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or tell me what, why you think the facts are not, as, as I claim them to be or whatever. Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, my my my, fa my my father was in uh, was not himself uh, a physically affection. Um, mm. uh, uh, certainly, I mean, not to me. Uh, and how, uh, and it, it, I I think I am a physically affectionate person. Quite, my wife keeps saying to me, "I can't." <laughs> You're most like this, but there are all sorts of ways in which in which he, he I, I knew that he expressed his love for me very deeply Absolutely. All, all through my life. And so I was, I was never unsure of his love, and on one occasion when I did say to him, "You don't love me," and he was really upset. Mm. And said, "You mean that?" And I said, "I did. You know, I did mean it, but, but that was only because I wanted to upset him, not because I did mean it." Um, mm. One of the more, um, I think, extraordinary aspects of Romulus as both text and film is the uh, depiction and poetic descriptions of what are sort of conventionally understood to be quite harsh Central Victorian landscapes, where you and your family found yourselves. So can you reflect uh, on this further in naturalistic or, and poetic terms? So what is it about the landscape that sort of, I guess, uh, impelled you to sort of write about it in ways that I haven't sort of come across in a lot of Australian literature, but also how, you know, this, distinct, this distinctive country fostered in you a sense of the beautiful, uh, the sublime and the transcendent, along with a sense of home and belonging in Australia, 
while it was such a different case for your mother and father uh, in that it sort of persisted as a reminder of their own displacement from their homeland in in Europe, um, perhaps rendering them as a stranger in a strange land, as it were? Yeah, well, I, I, well, I, well the sense of how, how that countryside can appear on, on a summer's day uh, to, to someone from uh, Europe uh, or, or England, and, and in this case, uh, I'm talking about an English person. Uh, I, I, I went with my German cousin and uh, her uh, English uh, uh, husband uh, to where the houses stood, Frogmore, uh, where I grew up. And uh, the, the husband is, is a quite a laconic, um, um, not at all an emotionally expressive mm. uh, boy from Birmingham. Mm. <laughs> And uh, we, we were standing there, and uh, he leant uh, against a, 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 um, a fence post. And I, I thought he was just resting, and, and I, he, he was looking at the remains of the house. And I looked at him, and I saw tears were in his eyes. And, I, and afterwards, he, he, he said, I, I, I thought how, how hard it would have been <laughs> for your mother. <laughs> so for a laconic uh, lad from Birmingham, uh, who would be very reluctant generally to express his emotions, uh, or even to say, I don't know if he has said, I hope he has said, uh, to my cousin, I love you. <laughs> yeah. You might, might find that even that hard, yeah. let's say, mm -hmm. uh, to become tearful and need the support of a fence post when he saw how harsh this landscape mm -hmm. was and how hard it must have been for a young uh, woman from a German city uh, who was in love with culture in all sorts of ways uh, to live there. But, but for me, um, I, because I think partly because I grew up there with such freedom, uh, able to ride my father's motorbike when I was 11 all over the place. And, uh, I'm sure it was in part because at 11 years old I had an epiphany. Mm. Uh, when, when I uh, went to shoot some rabbits, I, I, all my friends killed rabbits. They were a real pest. And, you could get it, uh, two shillings for a pair or something like that. Yeah. And I, I was a bit embarrassed by the fact that I, I was not that kind of country boy, so I thought, well, well, well I'll, I'll, so I took my father, or father's rifle and his motorbike and, and drove to this, this spot and walked up this hill. At a, and it was about five o'clock on a summer's afternoon and the sun uh, lit up the long yellow grasses that were swaying mm. in the wind and and it was it's a rocky sort of landscape so they're very impressive boulders uh, everywhere too uh, and uh, I, I just suddenly fell in love with it and as I say in, in Romans my father it was I was awakened with a kind of shock to the beauty yeah. of the natural world Harks back to that Iris Murdoch sort of notion of transcendence through nature as well. 
Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I rather regret using the word transcendent. <laughs> <laughs> transcendent at mm. that point, um, because it, 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 it can carry sort of mystical overtones that I, I, I'm not so sure that I want, and I don't want it to feed into people's idea that I'm really a closet Christian. And that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, but but what 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 what, yeah. what I'm what what I uh, an expression I have used, uh, although not not in that passage, but I think later when I talk about um, sailing with horror on Ken Curran and my my sense of the natural world then uh, was that it 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 awakened in me a kind of love of the world. Mm. Which I've sometimes called unconditional, though of course it's not unconditioned. It's conditioned by all sorts of things, but unconditionally in 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 that it's not based on a simple assessment of of whether things are going well in the world or whether they're not going well in the world, and um, and it it. Uh, it seems to be one of the most important things if one can encourage uh, in young people um, a love of the world. Yeah. Um, uh, one which, because one never knows what the future is going to be like. Yeah. Uh, one never knows whether one's going to end up living in a dark age where the amount of evil in the world could make you curse the day you were born. Uh, and and uh, that's why, on the one hand, it might sound airy fairy, but on the other hand, and it, this can this can be done actually through um, it, it. It's not just the natural world; it can be done through art. Yeah. Uh, in the philosopher's dialogue, I quote Pablo Casals uh, talking about that every morning for eighty years, he says he would go to the piano and play a prelude and or Fugue of Bach, and he said he calls it a kind of benediction on the house and says that it reminds him, I think his phrase is, the incredible marvel of being a human being. Mm. And says there's, there, there's not a day when he hasn't been awakened with a fresh amazement of the beauty of nature. So, so in, in, in that absolutely wonderful passage, which is so obviously written in the key of gratitude. Uh, you, you have the connection of the natural world or the human world. I mean, the incredible marvel of being a human being. It's not just nature. You mm -hmm. could never imagine such a person for a being, for who, the person who wrote that passage, being a misanthrope, for example. <laughs> yeah. And that's very important because there are people, especially these days, with climate change being such a terrible threat to humankind, there are, there are increasingly a number of people who are becoming misanthropic, saying it's the human beings who fuck everything up. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, there, I mean, there, there's, there's transhumanism, posthumanism, and uh, in all sorts of ways, the, the ethically inflected ways in which we talk about humanity, mm -hmm. like in an expression, a common humanity of being in one way or another undercut. Uh, and um, so what I think is wonderful about that passage from Casals is it brings together a, a, 
if you like, a transcendent. But all I mean by this now, that it's, it transcends and that any assessment of whether the good in the world is outweighing the bad in the world. That, that's all I would really mean by that. Mm. And I've sometimes quoted in this connection a passage of Wittgenstein's remark on his deathbed. Uh, he, he says to his doctor, tell them, meaning his friends, that it's been a wonderful life. Uh, and, and the person who reports this, Norman, is a, a student of his, Norman Malcolm, in his memoir, says how how uh, how moved, but also surprised he was that Wittgenstein would say that, because in many ways his life was an unhappy one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, but but what's clear, it seems to me, from from the way it's written, and also other things one knows about Wittgenstein, that he wasn't making an assessment of his life. He wasn't saying something which would make it logically or conceptually appropriate to say, even if it might be presumptuous, or, but still conceptually appropriate to say, come on, Wittgenstein, you sure was wonderful? <laughs> it wasn't just, I mean, really, realistically, it's hard to say it was good. <laughs> but so, so, so it, it wasn't, an, it was as much as, as much as Casals, it was an expression of gratitude. Uh, and again, one by, by the sort of parody that you, one can see by the parody that I just made yeah. is not vulnerable to a, a line of working out, you know, how much good there was in it. And there's a point in which you say, for God's sake, it must have been absolutely miserable. I was just remembering um, uh, the final tweet, um, it's all been bloody marvellous. Um, um. Mark. This is the problem. What, his last name was escaping me and he used to host PM and yeah, the sound. Yeah. Mark Colvin. Mark Colvin. Yeah. His final tweet, you know, uh, he was such a prolific user yeah, yeah. of Twitter. So apologies for lowering us sort of from the sublime to the tweeting. But I, th the same sentiment, I think, came through um, sort of... Uh, and, and, and it, his last few years had not been bloody marvellous or anything close to it. The last two decades, really, he suffered from chronic illnesses, yeah. um, was in hospital a lot. Yeah. But it also reminded me of Oliver Sacks, who's an um, yeah. uh, um, uh, American, I think British, actually, medic. One of his final books he published was called Gratitude, simply. Um, but at the end of his life, and I think he died uh, prolonged death from cancer, was an overwhelming feeling he had of gratitude for being you know, a sentient uh, being on this marvellous blue planet. I think that sort of sentiment is echoed in Colvin, but also um, through what you referenced there as well. Are you, you're writing a book about gratitude or uh, it's a book people? Uh, about people who really matter to me. Yeah. Uh, and it's called, um, it's going to be called Portraits in Love and Gratitude. And most of the people are, are unknown to the world. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, some, some are philosophers who, 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 have, been, who have known. But it, it then, it's not biographies of them. It, mm. it, 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 in one way, it, it could, could almost be um, an intellectual biography. Yeah. Uh, it was autobiography. Um. In, in saying that, I think one of the things that, about Romulus, my father, that has always struck me is that it's, it's this form of moral education that seems so rare, particularly in this day and age, in the sense that um, it... It uses the lives of real people, which is something that you've sort of spoken about, um, horror emphasising and 
um, believing that it was very important that you tell stories of real men and women who have lived mm -hmm. in order to understand qualities of goodness and, um, and virtue. Um, so that part of it has always seemed very sort of different to the time in which we live and also the fact that it, it celebrates um, lives that were not lived on a grand scale either, you know, and it doesn't celebrate people who achieve celebrity or fame or power and it doesn't occur in, an, in a, a fantasy world, it doesn't use sort of um, religious figures, it, it tells those stories. Um, do you feel that that's a form of moral education that is lacking or that we could use more of? Well, I, uh, I, 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 I think we, we, we learn through being moved by examples that uh, strike us as authoritative. Um, uh, and I, uh, I, I, I don't think we learn morality from a set of principles. I don't think my father had any principles. Mm. Uh, he's often described as a man of uh, strong and often rigid, <laughs> rather rigid principle. Mm. Um, moral severity or uh, something that's yeah. severe well, judgment. Well, he, he, yeah, yeah, he could be morally severe. Mm. And mm. one of the things I learned from him uh, uh, that you could be morally severe without being judgmental. Yes. Um, and moral philosophy is obsessed with praise and blame. Uh, philosophy students studying freedom of the will, they say, God, if the will is not free, you can't blame anybody. <laughs> really. <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing in the world is that you should not be able to blame. Uh, or, and, and who needs your praise anyway? You know, so, um, I, that was a very important lesson uh, that, I, that I learned from my father, that, that there could be such a thing as a kind of severe pity for somebody. Mm. Um, severe because um, it, it was insistent that a moral description of their conduct was, was the case, that they had done something morally bad and terribly even. Uh, but, but the appropriate attitude might be, or certainly some people's attitude just is, one of sorrow uh, or pity for that person. Uh, and that's partly why I think I was moved to say in Romulus, my father, that I compared what I compared my father to my my son, not my father, to Rom, uh, to Socrates, but that he shared the Socratic belief mm. uh, that it's better to suffer evil than to do it. And um, Socrates uh, did claim in the same dialogue in which he enunciated that that, that miserable do uh, evil doers are necessarily miserable and pitiable. And I emphasize it necessarily because it's not because of anything else they will suffer. And, the, and there's in fact a wonderful moment in that dialogue which philosophers often miss because it's a literary moment. I mean, what's powerful is this literary quality where Socrates has, has enunciated the idea that it's better to suffer than do it, uh, which uh, is in Locus, interlocutors are just incredulous that anybody could think something so stupid. <laughs> Socrates replies, I don't know, I don't know how he stands in regard to good and evil. I take it he means by that, I don't know if your description of him is true, not, not, 
Not that I don't know. How if to judge those actions. And, and Polis, so having said, I don't know how he stands in relation with an evil, Polis says with shock, what? It depends just on that? <laughs> and Socrates says, yes, just. Now, this is a moment of great pathos in, in, in the dialogue, uh, which gets missed because it's a, it's a moment of great pathos. And because and, most commentators say what Socrates means is that in the end, if, if you lack virtue, you won't flourish. And there's even a myth at the end of the Gorgias about the afterlife and so on. Yeah. But Plato was a great artist, and he, 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 wouldn't, he wouldn't have a moment of such wonderful, extraordinary pathos and then undermine it all by saying at the end, oh, well, if you don't cop it in this life, you'll cop it in the next. Yeah. So it will be a complete failure. Um, so, uh, so, so Socrates did actually uh, actually think if you if you really understood what it was that you, if you really understood the evil you're confronted with in the deeds of a particular person, if you really understood that you would pity that person. Now that's a very strong point uh, that is conditional, as it were, upon understanding that, that, that you pity the person. But you can make the, there's a weaker version of the point, which, which is we, we know that, let's say, mothers or forefathers or parents sorrow over their children if they've done something morally terrible. Yeah. Uh, because, just because they've done something morally terrible. Mm. Uh, and if they're lacking in remorse, they'll, they'll sorrow even more. So it's not that they're sorrowing because they're remorseful and unhappy and miserable, miserable in that sense. Yeah. Uh, or, and it's not that they're sorrowing because they fear, but as a matter of fact, other consequences will follow, which might be the case. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they sorrow because they've become terrible wrongdoers. And, and a person who's seriously remorseful it's not that that person sorrows for himself, because that would be self-pity, inconsistent with a serious remorse, but that person is shocked. I mean, I've often written that the characteristic expressions of remorse are a bewildered, shocked recognition of oneself as a wrongdoer. Yeah. It's a form of understanding, not an emotional response to the fact that you've violated a principle, mm. for example, or not, a, not an emotional response to an independently characterizable understanding of wrongdoing. It's an expression of that understanding. And so, so much of my, my work has been trying to emphasize that, that, that it's through coming to, 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 to fully understand certain kinds of examples with which one's confronting. But of course, you have to reflect on the fact that you're moved by those examples. Right? You can't just accept them. Mm. But, but I, uh, and, and uh, it would be naive because you might be moved because you're sentimental or given to pathos or goodness knows why. But what I wanted to emphasize in my work is, is, is that it's not enough. If, if somebody says, look, you need rationally to assess how you are moved. Uh, I want to say, well, of course you do, but, 
if the concept of a rational assessment doesn't exhaust the critical concepts you have to deploy in that assessment. You might have been irrational, but more often actually the reason we're moved when we shouldn't be moved is not because we're being irrational, mm -hmm. it's because we've been given to kitsch, we're turned deaf to we're deaf to tone and so on. And and I've I've wanted to to argue against philosophers like for example Peter, Peter Singer, who's basically <laughs> Several episodes a, back. <laughs> that there's a very narrow conception of reason. Mm. Uh, it's not that I want to say that reason. My point is not that reason has its limits and after that we give over, give over to emotion. I want to say there's no such thing as reason. Uh, there's thinking well and thinking badly. That's what there is. And, and whether you're thinking well or badly depends on what you're thinking about, what kind of concepts govern thinking about this or that domain of reflection. And if you come out of the theatre and say, God, I never, I've, I've really come to see something. I've never understood this before. Never, or, or, or sort of understood it, but not so deeply. Mm -hmm. uh, then I might say to you, yeah, I know you feel that. You're always yielding to your sentimentality. Every time we go to the theatre together, you come out saying this and this and this. Now, I might be right, I might be wrong, right? but, but it's, that's a concept that needs to come into play in a critical assessment of how we are moved by art. And what's striking, if you do any course in moral philosophy, in the English-speaking world at any rate, there'll be lots of talk about reason, moral objectivity, are moral judgments true, are they false, are they objective, are they not objective, and all that. But you won't hear a discussion of what do concepts like you're being sentimental, you've yielded to pathos. What role do they play in our assessment of whether you're thinking badly or, or well or badly? Of whether, to take the big Socratic category, whether you're being legitimately persuaded, right? Or whether you're being illegitimately taken to, even if it's a true belief. Mm -hmm. right? I just wanted yeah. to emphasise yeah. that because I I I I, uh, I don't because I, I don't want in any way to be taken as as someone who's a kind of irrationalist. Yeah, or an advocate uh, for a false distinction of between reason and emotion. No, no, something no. Along those lines. Uh, and I'd say let's get rid of the concept of reason. Rationality has its place, a limited place. It's really important. I t I take it as just obvious that you have to try to be rational. Yeah. I just take, I take it, it should be obvious too if we actually reflect on the concepts with which we assess whether we've been, we've been rightly persuaded to believe something or to make a claim to understanding something more deeply, that we need other concepts as well to assess that. And, and when people get moved by someone like Trump and so on, it's not just because reason has deserted them and been thrown into a ditch, it's because they at the outset of Romulus, you cite Plato, who said that those who love and seek wisdom are clinging in recollection to things they once saw. You go on to list how many of the virtues and qualities of character that defined your life you learned from observing and emulating both your father and horror. South African novelist J.M. Kotzier later noted that Romulus comes to serve as a lifelong moral compass to you and via you to us as readers. This is all neatly encapsulated by the image of the bees being given life by light and heat which frames the film, which is reminiscent of Plato's famous analogy of the sun, 
The sun is representative of the life-giving good, which is kind of like what reminiscence of horror were like to you. Could you reflect on Plato's influence on your writing and life? So well, there, 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 are, there are a number of issues there. One, <laughs> one, one is, is um, the metaphor of vision and light mm. in the sun. Mm. Um, and in fact, someone's uh, or wants to write a book about my work in which he's I think it, it, the, the, the title is going to be something like um, seeing, I don't know, the seeing the world is rotated, or some, anyway, the thing is on emphasis on seeing. And in a way, I, I, look, it's, it's, I, it's very natural to say that, to see the world this way, or I, and in fact, I say, I, mean, I came to see Vatic in the light of yes, light yeah. cast. Yes, he did say, yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I, I, I really want to emphasize uh, speech because um, I, I, I think I, I learned from my father and from Horan through their conversation. Hmm. What what it what um, what it was to be able to to be someone who has something to say, yeah. and and uh, that conversation um, as as in in the loaded sense in which we speak of conversation. Um, we said last last I had a real conversation with somebody. The last I really found someone to talk to. Mm. Uh, uh, through through my father and Hora, but especially through Hora, actually, uh, I realised how fundamental the possibility of such conversation, how fundamental to the possibility of such conversation, is the idea of, of what I'm calling, what I have called a call to seriousness. That no matter what, how, how uh, light-hearted a conversation may be, Anything, at any time, something could come up and someone might say, for God's sake, for God's sake how can you say that? Mm. I never believed you would say such a thing. Mm. Uh, and, and then there has to be a response to that. And I've called it an individuating response. You're, you're really called then to speak out of, out of your life. Because uh, you, you, you can't just say anything if someone says, for God's sake, stop talking off the top of your head now, this really matters. You know? yeah. Kierkegaard has this wonderful expression of living your life, your own life and nobody else's. And when you call somebody seriousness, that's what you're asking them to do. Just, and it, it, it's a place for the idea of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I actually think this gets quasi technical, but I, if if you ask what 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 gives normative authority to concepts like sentimentality when they function as mm. critic, 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 criticisms of thought, not feeling. Mm. If you say, if you come into the theatre and say I came to understand something, and I say yeah, and you think you did, it's being sentimental. I'm not criticising a feeling. I'm criticising what you now claim to believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, if you ask what, what, what gives normative authority to that, the question being analogous to what gives normative authority to the concept of irrational, right? 
Och vad kyrkos normativt an invalid influence, right? Uh, well, I, I, I'd want to say what I'm calling a cult of seriousness is partly what constitutes the, norm, the normative authority of those concepts as critical concepts, by which I mean concepts which we use to assess whether we're thinking well or badly. So in that sense, conversation becomes utterly fundamental to the kinds of assessment, for example, uh, of, of our response to someone's example. Mm. So when Aristotle says, uh, if you want to know what the just what justice is, look look yes. to the just man. <laughs> yes. But implicitly, I don't know if he says it, but implicitly, of course, is you have to have eyes to see. Mm. It's so natural how the metaphor of vision functions there. Mm. But I want to say, when you're moved by someone you think to be just, and you ask yourself, have you been rightly moved, or have you been conned by the charismatic personality, mm. for example, mm. then. It's not good looking. Yeah. Then you have you have to reflect. So, I I I disagree. I, uh, this, I disagree very much with Iris Murdoch about this when she says there are two big move, uh, metaphors in philosophy: the metaphor of vision and the metaphor of movement. Mm. That may be historically right. But you know her big example of this, which has become really famous, uh, is is in a kind of polemic against Wittgenstein's private language argument. She gives the example of a woman uh, reflecting on her daughter-in-law, uh, and the woman is M, and the daughter-in-law is D, and M had thought that D was always a bit vulgar. Uh, noisy, a bit this and a bit that. And the example is of M just through ref reflection and attention, uh, but nothing else, changing her view uh, of, of uh, D. But of course, I mean, what, uh, what Murdoch doesn't think of here is of what Dean might think of and <laughs> rethinking. Mm. Yeah. And might Dean might come up and say, for God's sake, you're so fucking arrogant. Yeah. First of all you thought I was a stroppy bore. Mm. Now you think I'm this and that. None of it was talking to me. Mm. You could have come up to me and said, hey, mm. what a anyway, you could have to put it in my language. You could have called me to a certain kind of seriousness when you're just there fuming over what you thought to be my dog Gareth. Mm. But then you get away from vision, you get, you, you get into dialogue. So the call to seriousness almost always necessitates conversation or in this. Yeah, I gave an example of this in, in uh, after Romulus um, mm. talking about horror, where. Do you know? I do. I, I've. I've been wrestling with the essays in After Romulus all week, <laughs> and this is one of the ones where I'm really glad that you're actually talking about it because yeah, it's interesting well, and it's a it's a nuanced point um, as well. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, uh, uh, Hora had fled from communism, and mm. he thought it was a very, very uh, I think right. He thought it was a brutal, brutal regime, and he also thought. Uh, 
as many people did. I, I won't comment on whether it's right or wrong, but he thought that, that, uh, that the communists were doing trade of the trade union movement and various other things. And, uh, and when I was a student, I was attracted um, to quite radical left-wing politics. In fact, I flirted with joining the Communist Party. And I had a guitar, and, and um, I went, Hor and I were living in the same house, renting rooms in the same house, and I went to his kitchen and said, do you want to hear a song? <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, fine. So uh, I played this song, a union song, The Scabs Crawl In, The Scabs Crawl Out, The Scabs Crawl Under, and all about. And he lost his temper. So this is what university education does for you. Don't you know that the unions infiltrated by the communists? Don't you know what brutal mass murderers the communists have been or, or in, in the Soviet Union and elsewhere? And, uh, and, he, uh, he, he, and he knew, of course, that I knew because he told me. And he didn't speak to me for about three months. They were in the same house. Mm. And though I went into his kitchen a number of times, trying to, mm. uh, now, it's natural to take this as, as a simply example of a man turning his back on you, saying, "You're, uh, I won't speak to you again in that in that tone." But uh, I, I'm quite sure it wasn't that. It was just uh, horror felt. If I could be so superficial. Uh, as not to care that I was singing the praises of mass murderers or people associated with mass murderers who themselves didn't care about the mass murderers. Uh, if I could be so superficial, what could we ever talk about? Yeah. Uh, because, and you, you might say we could talk about all sorts of other things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, is true. But the point I wanted to make about conversation is we might, we, we might talk about anything, but it might come up at a certain point where we, someone says, well, how could you think that? So, so he, 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 he thought that what he had valued so much in, in our relationship, he, he thought at least for some time, they made it possible. Because he thought I could never be brought to to a to a seriousness because I have revealed myself to be so superficial yeah. about something so fundamentally important as the lives of thousands of people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so so even so so a, a chat about uh, you know sailing on Cape Cod, but even that we couldn't talk about that mm. because. That had been so morally and deeply important to me. Mm. So if, if, let's say, just imagine we mm. were to reminisce about the days on King Khan, it would be a kind of reminiscence in bad faith from his perspective because he would think that whatever he might have thought I've got from that, clearly I hadn't. Mm. That you had missed what he had tried yeah. to impart. So, so I think yeah. he was literally incapable, or he thought it was he thought it was ethically impossible to have a certain kind of conversation. Mm. But not that he he was 
uh, angrily turned his back on me. The notion of uh, of a call to seriousness and uh, the way that that relates to the ability to converse and have dialogue. I'm curious if you try to um, take that notion and expand its scope to public dialogue or to the way that we have debates with each other in societies. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 in, in fact, I, I do want to claim that, that um, well, t t take the recent election where... Uh, uh, people who think of themselves as progressives uh, have been accused of, of uh, a, a kind of condescension to uh, uh, people in Queensland and uh, people in the mining communities. Uh, and um, my, my, well, I, let me tell, tell a story that. Uh, that I think I've written about in, in a quarterly essay. When, when I was writing The Philosopher's Dog, I, I was uh, renting a cottage out in the country. And I'd go into the pub and uh, have a meal and talk to people. And it was the time of the Tampa crisis. Mm. And uh, so we inevitably start talking about, about uh, vote arrivals and things like that. And it was the time that children had been behind race life for up to four or five years. So the, the discussion would always go, well, you can't have two jumpers, can you? And, uh, and uh, you can't let in, well, obviously you have to have an immigration policy, you can't just let anybody in, and, and so on. And I'd say, yes, I, uh, yes, it's, it's a complex thing, and of course you can't just let anybody in. And, uh, but do you think if we could possibly tolerate a policy which has children behind the race while I'm watching uh, the, uh, uh, adults sever their lips and some adults commit, you know, trying to commit suicide. Mm. And they say, well, you, but you, well, you can't have two jobs and if you let the kids and, and so on and so on. Uh, and, 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 and often this would be standing up, up at a bar uh, and so the, the physical aspect is important, actually, because uh, what I found interesting is when I said, yes, but let's just focus on the children. Mm. They shuffle from one foot to another <laughs> you know, and, and look, look away. Mm. And this was a, then a call to seriousness. It was, yeah. it, and I, it, uh, I say, stop, just look at me and tell me, can you have a policy? And then in the end, they would say, no, we can't. And then I'd say, well, what about the adults now? I know, and again, I know we can't let anybody in, but need we have a policy that is as cruel as this one is to them? And it would be the same thing. And it was all, all it was actually quite literally getting them to stand still and look into your face. Mm. As, as talk about the embodied nature of conversation, the mm. necessarily embodied nature of the, the possibility of conversation. So uh, now I now so when um, I heard uh, someone uh, a minor in Queensland say, "Look, I have to feed. I have to have a job. I, my kids have to have a job. My grandchildren need a job." There must have been then, of course, there was the possibility of someone saying, "Hey, but we understand this. But think too about what will happen to your grandchildren if what people say about climate change." 
There, there is, I, I think of democratic politics as always envisaging the possibility of calling a fellow citizen to seriously. Mm -hmm. To say, hey, look, we're in, you, you voted for this. It really buggers me up if this were to happen. Like this is what the miner says. Mm -hmm. it, they were wanting to call people down south to, to call progressives to seriousness. Yeah, so who do you think you are? You come up, you roll in, in with your convoy, with your caravan. <laughs> so, so anyway, the tone of this person who says, "Look, I need a job. My children need a job." Mm. He was, that was called a seriousness, which should have been, which has to be answered. So I, I, I think of democratic politics as, as, as being a politics in which you imagine your, your fellow citizens, and this is what's constitutive of them as your fellow, fellow citizens, mm. as being people you could, at least in principle, if you were to meet them above, call them to seriousness. And we're fast running out of time. So I think that's a really profound and thought-provoking note to end the interview on. Raymond Gator, thank you so much for being with us here today.